guys. Can you turn the volume up on this thing? Or should I turn you? Hey, is my air conditioner coming through the background? I can hear you. No, you're fine. Leave it on. Leave it on. Just turn the volume up. There we go. Okay, uh, guys, we are live. All right, what's up, everybody? Hello. Yo. Hello. Episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMay. I'm your host. I'm with my partner, my co-host in all things law enforcement. What's up, Bill Cannon? How you doing, man? What's happening? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great, man. I'm very excited tonight. We've got a great, great guest. Uh, what do you think? Should we just bring him on board, or do you want to do oh, the... mention our Patreon first. got to get paid, man. <laughs> all right, so... Um, we we uh we we launched our Patreon on Monday and we're we're very very happy to announce that we have uh, we have some subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a complete loss. Um, so yeah, so Bill wanted to do like we wanted to do like a roll call, and we'll do that for uh, our, for our new subscribers if they like. Um, and uh, we appreciate the people who have come on board. So, Bill, do you want to do the roll call? Yeah, I just wanted to thank. We have three levels of our Patreon. If you know what Patreon is, we're actually asking our audience to pay to watch us. But the Patreon gets extra things. Like, for example, Mark is going to start doing a weekly current events video, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. And I'm start, going to start doing a, um, a true crime episode, uh, probably, you know, two to four possibly per month. For our Patreon members. So you're actually getting some extra uh, programming from being a paid Patreon member. And we have three levels. The first one's called the bucket. Because the bucket is the lowest level. That costs $7 a month. The second level is polish my rack. And that costs $9 a month. And the highest level, of course, if you ever watch this show, is dipped in butter. And that costs $11 a month. And actually, we have more people going for the dipped in butter because they know it feels so good. To dip them in butter. And I'd just like to shout out to the people. I'll shout them out by name, except that I know the person wouldn't like their name shouted out. David George, thank you. John the Sniper. Phil Ross, my father-in-law actually uh, became a dipped in butter member. Kerry O'Connell, my son Casey Cannon, who I spent $150,000 paying for his college education. He went for seven a month. Matthew Cutler, Nicholas Marshall, Pinky Doe doesn't want to be known by her real name. Christopher <laughs> Strom, thank you, Christopher. Brooklyn to Baghdad, all the way. Matthew Kastler, Aaron Rodriguez, and Sean Lisko. Thank you guys so much. And if you could possibly dip them in butter, go for that 11. It's going to be worth it. Thank you so much. All right. So uh, we'll probably bring that up one more time. And uh, the other announcement before we start is this Saturday, right, is the rally? At 12 noon at City Hall Park. Scott my, uh, my thin blue line shirt. It's a beautiful shirt. I love this. Um, Scott Lebedo has had put to, has put together um, a huge rally that's going to take place downtown. The meeting place is uh, City Hall, and um, we have him up on our Instagram wall. You can hear um, you can you can pick up look at his art, and you could also hear him promoting this weekend. So it's on our Instagram, Police Off the Cuff Instagram. Check that out. And uh, if you're not doing anything Saturday. Go down there, man. Join the rally. It's uh, the blue. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. And uh, without further ado, we're going to bring on our guest. It's an honor to have him here. Um, he's a retired member of the service. He was uh, the Manhattan South Night Watch Sergeant 
Um, he's made appearances on the TV show Perfect Murder. He was on the job for 39 years in two oh, months. Ouch. <laughs> Couldn't make the 40, huh? What's, no. up? What's no. up, Sergeant Pete Panuccio? What's up? How are you? How are you? How are you? Did I say the last name right? I hope so. You got it right. Panuccio. All right, good, man. I'm happy. Happy to have you. Glad to be here. Where, where are you? I'm at a secret, undisclosed location. Uh, are you in America? <laughs> I am in America, in my living room. All right, good. How's it feel? Does it feel liberating to be uh, retired 39 years? Did you get a psychological evaluation? For I, I had a few of them over the years. Uh, being on that job for 39 years, you definitely need, need one, I think, you know? Yeah, you, you, you know what? It feels good, though, I have to tell you. I, uh, I was a little scared. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, it, it, it was just time. And then once after you're out, I, I, it's, uh, well, I did night watch for 10 years. So, so you sudden, sleep, you sleep upside down in your closet, actually in a coffin. I have a coffin with dirt in it from Transylvania that I close. Um, and well, I, can you explain to us what night watch is for the, for those of, um, the law enforcement and, and not, uh, you know, the, the civilian listeners that are not from New York. Yeah, Night Watch is basically, uh, we handle all of the detective stuff between 1 a.m. and 8 a.m. Uh, my specific area was Manhattan South. We worked jointly with the guys from Manhattan North. We spent a lot of time up there, especially this year with the, with the shootings and stuff. Um, but anything that rolled in the door that would require investigation, we would go out on. You know, bad assaults, shootings, homicides, shots fired, DOAs. Uh, something different every night, which was one of the, uh, really, one of the more rewarding aspects of the job. At eight o'clock in the morning, you pass it off. You do your work, and then the, the local detective squad picks it up. Pete, you know what's funny? I remember, you know, being up in the north, I used to have to cover uh, Night Watch every once in a while, you know? And the north would be rocking, and the south, they'd be... And I would say, hey, they're coming up to the north. So I'd call the South and say, guys, you got to go up to uh, the 3-4. And they'd be like, we're from the South. I go, I don't give a fuck where you're from. The North is rocking. You guys haven't had a single job. Put these, get, take off your slippers, put your shoes on, and get up to the North. Yeah. They didn't like me, they didn't like me at all. <laughs> you know what, though? It's changed. It's changed. It changed a lot in the last 10, 12 years. Uh, we had some good bosses up there. It was one borough at one time. Um, you had... Up until about, I want to say 2007, you had the one team up in the north. And really, it was, was not the cover, nearly the coverage that you needed. Um, Manhattan South, everything bad in Manhattan South happens after 4 o'clock in the morning. Right. That is when you're going to get bizarre phone calls, people falling in front of trains, you name it. Suicides. Uh, and, and prior to the lockdown, that's where all the drunks are stumbling out of the bars. Right. And then, you know, now it's hunting time. And burglars. we got burglars in the south up the wazoo. It, 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 out of control. So tell our, uh, Pete, tell our audience what Manhattan South is, the geographic area. It's 59th Street, east to west side, from 59th down to the Battery. Um, you know, the one thing about Manhattan South is when something happens in Manhattan South, it's the lead story in the morning. Right. Yeah, it's national have, news. It's like it's like national news. What yeah, you could have seven people shot in Brooklyn. Nobody cares. Yeah, you know, you get somebody uh, 
whatever. It just it doesn't even have to be a really well-known person. Get somebody cut or you know a, a mid a fair to mid-level uh, wannabe star. Lindsay Lohan was like a she was a, a like a, a frequent flyer with us with her antics in Manhattan South. Um, but that will dominate the news. It'll become national international news. Yeah. What kind of stuff was she doing? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Like what? What? What would she get? What would you get called for with her? What kind of? Um... She was prone to running people over. Actually, did she hit the guy? She sort of tapped him, you know. But it was international stuff. Um, yeah, also- but there's a lot of guys who run right in front of your car over there too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that happened. happened. I had to happen. Some guy timed it perfectly, but he didn't know I was going to look at my phone. So I just stopped for a second. He just ran right past me. Yeah. <laughs> and then you screwed his whole day up. He was counting on you. Um, Billy will tell you a few, I'd say about 10, 15 years ago, that was, that was especially in the 19th precinct. These mutts will go out and, you know, you see a guy riding by in a Bentley. They have an old shitbox car and they crash into the guy and next thing you know everybody's there holding their neck and it's like call my doctor jacoby and myers you know and uh they were targeting people with expensive vehicles you know wow. and you'd roll, especially you're a patrol boss i'd roll up on the scene with some of these things uh-huh. like oh yeah and i'm like yo dude pack your shit all right say it walking all right a lot of it you knew what it was you know people what's amazing is and you had been in the detective bureau for a long time, is that if a really complicated case occurred in Manhattan North, no one gave a shit about it. But if it happened in the South, everyone from the chief of detectives up to the police commissioner wanted to run the case, right? Oh, without a doubt. And, and you know what? Well, except for the 19th. The 19th is sometimes the two. Right, months. the 19th had the same problems with that. Yeah, the 19th was really just an extension of Manhattan South. Manhattan uh, South, yeah. The 19th, Every day with, with the phone calls and uh, do you know who I know and this and that. Politics, um, you know, on our routine cases, you know, phone calls would come in from wherever and just really ramping up the pressure on something that's basically pretty routine. Right. Um, you spent a lot of time in the 19th and you saw what went on down there. And Unbelievable, you know. You, you forgot that you knew how to investigate a homicide when you got there. Like, well, you would get, have to tell you how to do it, you know. <laughs> you would get a homicide in the 19th that, that could be no different than a homicide in the 2-8. And the pressure, the phone calls, the yelling, the screaming. You know, usually as a supervisor, one thing I always, especially with, we had a great crew of detectives in the 19th precinct, really good people guys that you know very well all you had to do was just leave these guys alone and let them do their job remember the uh felix brinkman murder the holocaust survivor oh yeah yeah and uh it was like it it was a great case and we solved it quickly but they abused the shit out of the doorman who was a witness yeah we were waking him up at five and get him in now get him up bring him in at 4 30 no bring him in at four (laughs) you know they were like that's the way to kill a witness, but they, they almost killed the witness. Well, the, the, the prime example of that was the realtor to the stars homicide on Fifth Avenue. Um, a certain chief of detectives at the time, a guy, you know, who read a lot about 
detective work. And, uh, <laughs> you know, never did anybody read a lot of books about it? You, you know, that's that's where you kind of separate things. And uh, he, what was ordained as to what he wanted done with that case. I, you know me, I've been around, dumping a lot of stuff over the years. I have to tell you something. I, I was talking to the squad commander at the time who was catching massive abuse. And I'm sitting there holding my head and, and I says, I'm ready to start. I'm going to break down in tears over building canvases. When that was all said and done, we had 4,800 apartments. They wanted canvassed. They wanted everybody ID'd. They wanted everybody interviewed. 2,300 cab drivers on top of that, that we tracked through GPS, they wanted them interviewed. 10 years later, I'm sure there's still cab drivers calling the 19th Precinct Detective Squad saying, hello, you want to talk to me? Um, and, then, and then the case, there was like 20 case folders of 100 EV5s, right? That was the case that broke the system down. The entire oh, system, oh, we, we crashed e ECMS multiple times. What case was that? That was a uh, lady uh, that was murdered in her apartment on Fifth Avenue, um, found dead in the apartment. And it, it, I don't like using the term, it was a great case because somebody's dead. But as cases go, it, it was an amazing case. We had 40 people on the late, I'm sorry, 40 people on the day tour, 40 detectives on the four to 12, 16 detectives on the late tour, the first couple of weeks for that case. The net result of that, ungats, nothing. Um, canvases upon canvases. It was over 1,800 DD5s in the case. And uh, absolutely, I'd say 1,750 of those DD5s were completely useless. The DA's office actually thought we were lying to them when we told them we cannot print this stuff out. That's how bad it crashed the system at the time. Yeah. Now, as with a lot of cases, you know eventually you're going to get a break. When the break came, really what you needed to do was just leave the detectives alone. We had Billy's guys there from Manhattan North Homicide. We had my guys from the 19th Detective Squad. And two groups of people that are without a doubt, you know, and I, and I really don't think I'm being playing favorites here. These are some of the best detectives in New York City operating at that time. And uh, when the break came, it, 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 talk about the torture increasing. Do this, do that, you know. Leave these guys alone. I remember that case and one of the things, how it got a little bit derailed was that someone, some big boss thought it was the construction workers that were working on the, on the uh, floor above. Correct. So they force the detectives to go in that direction. The detectives go, no, uh, we don't think they did it. We, they, they're pretty much clear. And the direction, well, you could tell who was the uh, numero uno suspect. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when, when the, you know, there, in the beginning, there was a couple of schools of thought. And it went back to, as they, as an old time detective used to say to me, he says, kid, usually the obvious is the most obvious. And uh, it was the last person that saw this woman alive who pummeled her. And once we focused on her, that's where the whole thing unraveled. Um, 
she'd been stealing money and uh, the woman that was murdered was not really a pleasant woman either. She had a lot of... <laughs> she wasn't too pleasant. Isn't that always the case? No, I'll tell you what, there was a lot of people that came out of the woodwork that they disliked her. And um, she knew a lot of people, though, that lady. Oh, she knew everybody. She was a rock promoter back in the 70s. Yeah, she knew um, a lot of people. Yeah, she did. But she, you know, at the end of the day, she's a victim. And she died an exceptionally brutal death. And, we, never, we never found the murder weapon, I that went out the door. We, that's uh, it was a yoga stick, right? That was supposedly what it was. Well, there was a yoga stick, and there was also a weight, a hand weight. That yeah. we were wondering maybe because that hand, we only found one hand weight in the apartment, and uh, actually a lot of research went into that. Are these things sold, you know, single, separately, you know, whatever? Yeah. And uh, when we got the video from the building. You could see she was carrying something heavy in her shoulder bag when she walked uh -huh. out the door. But that, that, was, that was a case where you talk about people calling up and bitching. We had lawyers dropping off papers at the station house telling us, do not go back to this building because of the canvases. The canvases were repeated, same apartments getting hit again and again. Right. People were actually like, stop it already. Leave us alone, you know? Hey, uh, why don't we tell our audience who did it? Because they're dying right now to, to know we did it. Nah, I, I'm not gonna. I don't want to. Uh... You don't have to say the name. Just tell her who she, what relation she was to the lady who was killed. I, I'm sorry. What was that? No, you don't have to say her name. Just say what relationship she was to the lady. Oh, I thought you were talking about who was the uh, no, odd no, guy no, that tortured us. Who did it? Who did it? Oh, it was the. Uh, it was the. Uh, her assistant. Her right, personal, personal assistant. assistant, right? Personal I, assistant. I, I remember the DA, uh, jo, I think it was Joan Luzzi. Her and her husband, who was, was also a DA, they watched the video hundreds, thousands of times, and they realized that the perpetrator had turned her pants inside out. Yes. But there was blood on the other side. Yes. So she turned them inside out so they wouldn't see the blood on the video. That's pretty... Yeah, and you know what? Once we started looking at her financials, she, she had all of a sudden she was. I got to give you give her credit where credit's due. She was making uh, like large donations to the boys' club. I think it was uh, Norfolk, Virginia, or charitable organizations. But she she ripped the lady off for forty grand and basically got caught. Right. And uh, she panicked, and you know, I really smashing her skull in was a little bit extreme. Uh, it could have been. <laughs> she should have just quit. <laughs> like everybody else does. Yeah, quit and leave. You know, Pete, I mean, we sort of got a little bit derailed, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your police career, what year you came on, where you worked, and, you know, chronology of what, of what you did. I came on the job 1981. I went to NSU 4, which is the 19th, the 2-0, the 2-3. Um, I was a young, eager crime fighter. Really, in 1982, I thought about going to TPF, but like somebody told me, it says, listen, hey, you're going to go to the 2-0, all right? And uh, I'm like, okay, I'll go to the 2-0. Hey, hey, TPF was the... Was tactical, tactical Patrol Force. What would become the, uh, the task force? Yeah, a little bit different than the task force. Basically, TPF would go into your neighborhood and just destroy whatever criminal element was in there and uh, uh didn't, you to, didn't you have to be over six feet 
they were loosening it up. I was five. They must give you some lifts in your shoes. Yeah, before I'll tell you what. Before my time, it was six feet. You weren't getting in there otherwise. Right. Uh, I was in task force. The task force was a little bit different setup. It was watered down, but then Animone took it over, and then we kind of sort of came back. Yeah, there was some different variations of it that went on over the years. Um, I didn't wind up in TPF. The day the orders came down, I was transferred to Central Park. Oh, like, oh my Lord, Central Park. And, and, you know, in the weird things that, the weird ways that things, you know, work out, I hooked up with a guy, a lot older than me, uh, a lot of time on the job, who took me under his wing. He walked a steady foot post on 59th Street and really taught me a lot about how to be the police, how to go out there and, you know, don't react. He was the king. Never react with getting mad. Always react with getting even. And <laughs> take no shit from nobody and don't let anybody get over on you. And uh, I worked with him for a year. I went into anti-crime. Uh, in Central Park anti-crime? Central Park anti-crime. Central Park anti-crime. Uh, you know, you got to remember, you're talking Central Park in the 1980s. Right. They, were banging, they were banging out probably around 40, 50 robberies a year. Uh, I'm sorry, a month. Right. And it was, if they weren't doing robberies in the park, they were doing them in the 19th and they would jump over the wall and vice versa. Uh, you had a lot of drugs there back at that time. And I was with a, a good crew of people. Um, in 85, I went to narcotics. Uh, three years there, same thing. Made some friends over there that to this day is still some of my closest friends. And uh, you see my career progression here is then I wound up, I left narcotics in, in the 7-7 squad in January of 88. The height of the crack wars. Um, Young guy, I'll tell you what, you want to talk about an education at the detective work. That precinct was a mile long, mile and a half wide, and 85 to 90 homicides a year. Um, nobody was looking at my case folder to see if I was up to date on my grand larcenies, because I <laughs> got a grand larceny the entire time I was in the 7-7. <laughs> it was an old boss uh, by the name of Freddie Hazel, who, who since passed away. Called me into the office and he said, uh, young man, sit down. He says, let me see your case folder. And Freddie was a dapper guy. He wore the best suits, always looking sharp, always is, spoke very quietly and uh, almost like a college professor. He's looking at my case folder and he says, that's, that's very nice what you got there. He says, are you familiar with the clearance rate? which back at that time was around 35% of your case. If you hit 35%, that was good. He says, 35% is great. 40%, you're a superstar. 45%, you're a lying motherfucker, all right? <laughs> he says, listen, he says, we don't want to look too good. We don't want to look too bad. He says, you see all that stuff that's in that case folder? That's typing practice. 90% of it is bullshit. He says, you see that wall? And he pointed to the wall. He says, each one of those brown folders has a body in it. He says, that's what you're here for. He says, and that's what we're going to take care of. And, and you know, kind of put you right at, 
you know, you knew where you were at. And seven seven back at that time, you could hear the gunfire going off. You know, about the best you could do around the station house is close the windows if it bothered you because there was that much gunfire in the streets. And uh, that was a great education. Um, you sat down and, you know, a lost art today is sitting down in the box with a perpetrator trying to get a confession. Back then, that was a daily occurrence. And these are some bad guys. And, uh, you know, you learned very fast. My second night there, old timer says to me, he says, kid, get your coat. New shooter. I'm like, huh? <laughs> New shooter. You're up. And I remember the address. It was 99 Rogers Avenue. There's very few things I remember about my police career, but I remember 99 Rogers Avenue. And it was a dump job of a young kid uh, dealing drugs. Uh, you, you had super predators in Brooklyn at that time. Guys were killing 8, 10, 12 people and wouldn't blink an eye. And uh, unfortunately... You know, I think we're going to see the rise of the super predator again here in New York City. That's where we're heading. But that was a great experience. And then How I, long were you in the 77 Corps? I was only there two years, two full years. I wound up going to Midtown North. Oh, man, someone dipped your balls in butter. <laughs> How the hell did that happen? 77 to Midtown North? Uh, oh, it must have been. God. It must have been recognition of the great work I was oh, doing. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Help! Help! <laughs> it's called the it's help called me. the hook. I wish I had the hook with you. That's what's called the hook. You said you were gonna help me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just yeah. the way things worked out. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I, my, one of my friends was on the desk there, and you know, all these chiefs' kids work there. And it's like my daughter Megan will be getting off this Saturday. And what's he gonna say? No, chief. You, there's no excuses. There is for my daughter. You know, like those kinds of calls he got. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll get an excuse. Let Sergeant to get transferred that night. To the 7-7. To the 7-7. You, you were brought in, so they had to transfer someone out. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> they loaned some guy who wouldn't give Megan McCardle off or whatever her name was. You guys should have to uh, stop for a beer, like two ships passing in the night. Have a beer and just go about your way. That's right. He's going to Brooklyn. I'm going to Manhattan. You should have to meet, have a beer, and then just keep going. Give a little wave as you're passing by. Um, yeah, I, I, found, I was there a couple of years. I was you in were the, in the North Squad? I was in the North Squad for close to three years. As a detective uh, or white shirt? As a detective. Uh, I wound up in the 10th Squad for a year. Um, That's a good squad, right? That was a great squad. That was absolutely All, all the clubs there, down there, right? Yeah, back then it was pretty disgusting. Um you had the clubs, but you, you had a big tranny population down there. Um, Bill would have loved that. Oh, yeah, I would love trannies, yeah. <laughs> but you know what, Pete, the reason I asked you whether you were a gold shield, because it wasn't uncommon back then for them to make investigators wait six to seven years to get their shield, especially rip guys. Yeah, oh, easy, easy. Yeah. You know, I wound, up, uh, I wound up in Manhattan South Homicide before I was promoted sergeant. Uh, when we had the merge, we had a transit guy rolled in from Transit Major Case. Nice guy. And he says to me one day, how long are you on the grid? And I looked at him. He said, the grid? He goes, yeah. He goes, you're not on the grid? I said, but the only thing I get on around here is usually the shit list two or three times a week. But yeah. grid? He says, 
He goes, you don't have grade? I said, don't have grade. I said, I got a better chance of getting hit by lightning. I said, there's seven guys ahead of me, okay? Some of them in rank 15, 16 years that were in homicide that did not have grade. I said, you know, Pete, it was similar. When I was in the 2-3 squad, I went there in 1997. When I tell you that was a superstar squad, they could have been the homicide squad. That squad was tremendous. Not a single guy in that squad had grade. Nope. No no, yeah, you're 100% correct. But until they, until they had legislation, I believe it was 1998, mandating the numbers, that was it. I used, I told the guy from transit, I says, bro, I said, I got like 12, 13 years on the job, all right? I says, I'm working with guys that have 40 years on the job. I says, I kiss the ground every day just to be here working with them. I really do. I says, I don't care if I ever get great, you know? I says, I'm just happy to be here. But that's the way it was. Then along about, I guess, about 98, that legislation, and it kind of opened up the gates a little bit. It, but, was, 20, it was 27 months initially that yes. an investigator would be promoted to detective, and then it was knocked down to like 18 months, right? Yeah, now, now they have the 18-month bill. Yeah, so you have to, if you're an investigator for 18 months successfully, by law, you must be promoted to detective, right? Yeah. We should do that with grade. Like, if you have um, what is it? The progress reports. What, what do they call the activity reports? What, the thing you got to sign. Oh, evaluation. Up. Evaluation. Evaluation. Yeah. If you get ten years of that solid evaluations, then you should just get grade just because. Just that's it. Um, I'm just saying. Worst case scenario. If you, you didn't get it before, you should get it then. You know, grade is something you could do a whole show just on grade and how it's assigned and how it gets passed around in the job. You have a lot of people that are not in the detective bureau that are in uh, different, some of them in specialty units where in fact they, you know what, they do deserve grade because the type of special work that they do. Um, yeah, like like swabbing the chief's undercarriage. Is that what you're talking about? That got, that's that in special, the book. That special kind of work? The heated alcohol prep pad, they take care of the chief's undercarriage. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the, a lot of that special work. That's the bucket squad. Uh, Let me tell you something. The hardest working detectives on earth are the catching detectives in a detective squad, a numbered squad. And they deserve grade more than anybody. And they don't get it. Right. And they that's don't get the, it. It's the sad fact. Um, they don't get it. People, you know. We often talk about, you know, you watch all these TV shows, you wrap them up in 48 minutes plus commercials. People do not realize the day-to-day -day, the amount of work that detectives have placed on them. And then in the middle of it, you catch a homicide. And it's, you, you try and, some people are better at it than others, but you get just completely just bowled over with the amount of work. You look at some of the stuff that went on, like I said, just in the 19th, you would have multiple incidents going on at the same time that required substantial resources in manpower, investigation, and nobody wanted to hear downtown like, uh, yeah, I can't do it right now or I'll get to it tomorrow. They don't want to hear it. And you could have, you know, you could have a high profile homicide and then, and then, you know, I don't know. The son of the, of the CEO of Merrill Lynch is missing. He fits yes. none of the criteria 
for missing person, but you better put two detectives on that case. You ain't kidding. Right? You ain't kidding it, because they don't want to hear no. They don't want to hear, I'll get to it. Pete, you know what I loved? I used to love, uh, well, being a boss, it was a pain in the ass, but case management. And some detectives, well, who were good detectives, had horrendous case management. And I always remember this detective in the 2-3. He came in one day, he was like 45 minutes late. And he fully intended to come in, sign in, and go right down to the gym and pump out about two hours of weightlifting, right? He walks in, and he's 45 minutes late, and he sees inspections there. And I see he, like, turns, like, white because he's, like, 80 in the hole, you know, with his cases. And I was like, I won't say his name, but I love this story. I was like, you better go hit that typewriter right now. And he's there with the typewriter. <laughs> and I, I was howling, laughing, because, you know, that's the... Uh, we used to have a lot of cases. I was an 80, 90 guy, maybe 100. <laughs> you were the guy I loved. I would, I'd say this week is Amnesty International Week. Give you know me anything that's legit, and I'll, I'll sign off on it, and I'll close it. You know, you know what I used to Yeah, that's what, that used to happen like once a year when you had to get your numbers down. That's when you just – but also, too, if I put a case in and you didn't sign off on it and there was like a whole bunch of yellow notes and I knew that I did all the work on it, it should just be closed um, – that case was going to go to the bottom of my thing. And then when you go on vacation, I'm going to give it to the covering, like the, the other boss, and he's just going to sign off on it. I'm going to yeah, take the stickers off, do another closing five, give it back, and it's going to be signed. That's what I used to do all the time. You yeah, I would, I, mean? hang up, I would hang up a sign in the office and say, we're having a fire sale this week on case closings. Right. Two for the price of none, all right? <laughs> Get it in. This is your amnesty. Sit down. <laughs> Start typing, all right? No, I, I did a version of that, too. But when I got a detective that didn't do the, the like, on a, say, a DD case, didn't do the bare minimum, I would actually write on the DD file, do this, 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 and this. And then I'd write, that's why they call it investigation. They would get fucking livid pissed at me. Like, but, like, why do I have to tell you to do these things on a DD case? There were certain guys, though, whose casework was impeccable yeah absolutely yes. phenomenal casework you had some guys that couldn't spell couldn't didn't know how to start a sentence with a capital letter and end it with a period who were great detectives and then you had guys that just probably shouldn't be allowed near a typewriter and then you had guys whose stuff was always perfect yeah that was the guy i would look for to put a yellow sticky on his case folder <laughs> and then wait for the resultant explosion when he would come in my office. <laughs> I worked with the guy and he used to have maybe seven, eight cases open. As soon as he got his, a case, he was closing it out one by one. Like it wasn't, he would, you know how you can look to open, you know, look for the uh, somebody or you can just look, how do I going to close this out? By the third day, the case was closed. He was giving it back. That's the way it used to go. He was just closing it out. But you, you see, here, here's where we went off the rails, okay? Uh, Chief Resnick put out a checklist. The, Re the Resnick checklist was meant for big cases, homicide, shootings, the heavies. And then it morphed. It morphed into the checklist for everything. Right, right. And then the checklist got bigger and bigger and to the point where no matter how much typing, you could sit there 
I mean, on a bullshit case, and you could sit there and do 10 or 15 DD5s. When I was in the 7-7, there was like, you did maybe two or three DD5s. And that was even on sometimes with shootings. This is what it is. There was no checklist. Right. This is what we got. Can we take it further? Yeah, we'll go for it. If we can't... For our non-police personnel, every time a detective talks to somebody on the phone, does any kind of investigative thing, he has to memorialize it on what's called the complaint follow-up. And Jargon, Pete said it, is it called the DD5? Just so our fans from all over the world know this. Listen to this. When they were stealing the cell phones like crazy, we had to... Um, you know, get in touch with the carrier and get the uh, the phone call list of all the calls that were made after uh, the phone was stolen. And then we had to go and visit all those locations and knock on those doors and ask them, did you receive a phone call from so-and-so? And sometimes uh, it was just such a waste of freaking time. And to close the case out, you had to like, it put the yellow that you got that number and what was the result on a five? Every number that was called, like, it was just, ins- th- that, okay. was- that goes back to a certain person, shall remain nameless, whose insanity, and I'm not, you know what? He did sometimes have good ideas and dragged us kicking and screaming at the computer age, but we went off the rails with the telephones, all right? of the people, when they lost their phone, they would make a complaint or whatever, they don't want to hear from you again. They don't care what you do with the phone. They don't want this followed. Just, I I got my complaint number, it's done. But that would still involve 10 or 15 follow-up reports on that case. An absolute waste of time. Subpoenas. We crushed a phone company with subpoenas on useless bullshit that nobody is ever going to look at again. Are there cases where you do phone subpoenas? Without a doubt. On a case where somebody's going to like, you know, hey, I lost my phone. I got drunk. I lost my phone. All right. Forget it. Close it out. Move on. <laughs> Waste the time. You know, when you were, when you did what, Night Watch, did you do uh, Midnight's before that? Or were you used to it? Your body? I got promoted sergeant in 95. Uh, I knew we'd get there soon to Sergeant. We're still back in some days, right? I went to uh, the 19th, and I tried getting back to, to the detective bureau and got caught up in the draft. And I wound up on the dark side. For you were an IAB? I never knew you were an IAB. Oh, yeah. What's your favorite cheese? Uh, Is it Gouda, Swiss, what, mozzarella? What do you like the best? Fomunda. <laughs> what happened? You know, and I'll tell you what. What nasty under Campisi, who is an evil person. I noticed you named his name. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. You know, I got. I thought I was going to uh, Vice, and I went before the board. The Vice contract didn't work out. I thought I'd make it to the bureau, so I said I'm going to yank my papers. So well, I, you want to go to the equipment bureau? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yes, the equipment bureau. Can I have the radio holders? <laughs> that would listen. As a, I'm going to tell you something. I would have done that, and uh, I wound up. I says I'm going to yank my papers, and there's a lieutenant down there. You call him up, and he says, "Oh, you do realize you're going to be blacklisted. You never go into a plane close." I says, "I'm the four to twelve condition sergeant, the 19th precinct. I, I'm loving life." So, 
you know, if this is what's going to happen to me, I just as soon stay here. The next night at 930 at night, I was transferred on a telephone message. I went absolutely, completely stalk raving mad. I, I, I'm actually surprised the issue didn't come in and tase me. I was that pissed. I had to be down there the next morning. Um, and what's funny was it was a detective, Manhattan detective uh, boss, big boss that was there at the time. He called me up. He says, listen, don't wreck your life over this. He says, let me put you in a group. You'll do traffic agents. You're working with a good boss. It's okay. Sure. I go down there the next day and I'm transferred to Canarsie. Oh, shit. So, yeah, doing like real IAB stuff. And, um, I, you know, the, I go, I had to go to Left Rack City, had to pee in the bottle. I go home. So I go in Monday. I'm not waking my ass up to go out there and be there at eight o'clock in the morning in Canarsie. So I come in, the CEO's waiting for me, and he goes, um, Where were you? I said, I was sleeping. He goes, really? He says, you're lucky I don't find your AWOL. I says, well, so I'm going to tell you something. I'm kind of depressed. And with that, you can see the look of sheer terror come across this guy's face like, ah. He thought he was going to have to EDP you. <laughs> I says, I'll tell you what. I says, I'm pretty upset over this. I was told I was going somewhere else. And I'm sitting here in fucking Canarsie. I live in Midtown. I says, I'm never coming here again. I says, give me a 28, which is a slip for lost time. And I says, tomorrow, I says, I'm going down to headquarters and I'm going to vest off the job. I says, this sucks. This place sucks. And basically you suck. <laughs> and, uh, he was a nasty, he was a nasty son of a bitch, that guy. Um, my buddy called me up laughing and he said, back then we had beepers. My beeper goes off. He goes, what did you just do to him? I says, I told him the truth. And he says, oh, my God, you got them all in a panic. Was he a, was he a career cheese captain or what? The guy in Canarsie was a lifer. Yeah, they're fucking, they were, those old IAB lifers, they, they were, oh, my God. They so control. What happened was, uh, like two, three days later, I was transferred to Group 56 in Queens, um, which is the traffic agents. And I'm going to tell you, the commanding officer over there, if he called me up tomorrow and asked me to invade hell, I would follow him. He was that good of a man. There were four or five other uh, sergeants. We all got pulled in there in the same day. Without a doubt, five of the most miserable people you've ever met in your life. But I'll tell you what, uh, some of those people today are still some of my closest friends. I had a, a bad family tragedy while I was there. Uh, my brother passed away suddenly. And I'm going to tell you something. You know, sometimes that's the bigger plan. The bigger plan is that put you in a place where you're going to meet the right people to help you get through those things in life. And I got through it, you know. And after I, when my time came, they said, where are you going? I said, A3, 19th precinct. I went back to Lake Tours in the 19th. I did not go to the detective bureau. And uh, I was back what in the back. What year was this? 98. Wow. I was back in the bag for five years, some of it in anti-crime. And uh, 2003, I finally went up to the squad. It was seven years in the 19th squad Holy and shit. 10 years in Nightwatch. 
wow. you paid your dues, man. Yeah, you know, Billy, I got no complaints. I loved every minute of it. I skated out of the IAB shit because I was in RIP, and uh, they just rolled RIP right into the squad. Or right, you know, RIP, RIP used to be part of patrol, even yes. though you worked up in the squad. And then they just uh, rolled the RIP sergeants right into uh, the detective bureau, so I didn't have to go to the cheese unit. Yeah, I got the I got the 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 intel on how I wound up there when everybody's when I went before the board, everybody says, nah, send this guy to the bureau. That's where he belongs, that's where he came from. So I spent almost eight years in the detective bureau as a detective. Campisi looks at my folder and says, This guy worked in Manhattan South Homicide as a detective. He's coming here. And that was the end of it. And uh, you're basically punished for good work that right. you did. And, um, you know, and I, and I, here, I put a little plug in here. You know, when we rolled the traffic agents in, when we took them over in the M NYPD, I don't think there was anybody who hated traffic agents more than me, especially living in Manhattan. Um, after the merge. I know you took a pool plate home. I know it. There's no way you lived in Manhattan you didn't have a pool plate. <laughs> no comment. Um, I wish I still had that pool plate. Mm. I'll tell you what, within about a year, you know, the traffic agents, we really, uh, the NYPD put some good management in there, and I got to know some of the managers in the place. They couldn't be any happier than to be under the wing of the NYPD because there was a, some of the agents, the tow truck drivers, um, I think using the word unruly at best would be kind and uh, crack the whip. And they actually turned into a, you know, fairly well-run outfit, which is now immediately going to go out the window because de Blasio, in his infinite wisdom, decides that we're going to take them away from the police department. Most of these people do not want to leave the police department. That's just that's just a numbers game because they're, they're sure it is police. without a doubt. So they take this big section of the police and they take it out of the police department's uh, budget. Well, they took them and they took the uh, school safety agents. School safety was a cesspool prior to us taking it over. Right. It's and be a cesspool again. Uh, it, both these agents, in time, it's going to slide back and we'll be right back to where where we were 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's public relations. Oh yeah. It sounds good with defunding the police, but who's going to get screwed in the end, especially when you think about it, you got kids in the, you know, who's in these schools with kids. They're there to protect those kids. Right. Do you want the same creeps back in there that were there 15, 20, 25 years ago? Of course not. I know I, you know, short-sighted, but then again, I'm not the police commissioner. What can I tell you? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's tough times for the NYPD, you know. It's absolutely yeah. horrible times. Uh, so you know, so we've uh, we did almost thirty five years of your career. So we got another we got another four left. Tell us what tell us what it was like in the last couple of years being on the NYPD. I'm sorry, the last. You know, the last couple of years. Well, last couple of years were great. You know, I was in Nightwatch, and uh, I had a. A lot of people that were there. You know, when I worked in Nightwatch, when I worked as a detective in Brooklyn, because Nightwatch has gone through different variations over the years. Some years it would be a dumping ground. Um, they would put their problem children in there. 
when I took it over, just, just speaking from my little end in Manhattan South, I told the guys that came there with me, they were like, listen, we're going to run this the same way we run a squad in that treat the cases like it's your case, like you would want it handed off to you. I said, these guys in the squad are getting crushed. I says, do good work. I says, I'm telling you right now, if we turn in good work in the morning and help these guys out, they appreciate it, the bosses appreciate it, and everybody else will pretty much just leave us alone as long as you're doing a good job. Right. And uh, that's pretty much, that was my mantra for 10 years there. Uh, uh, I was a squat guy, and I have to tell you that, um, you know, when I caught a case, the fives were always there on my desk from Nightwatch. Um, I hated doing Nightwatch, by the way. I just, uh, that, that whole thing just screws you up, man. It's not for everybody. It really isn't. Well, because, you know, when it came to the turnaround, I, I'd rather go out and do, <laughs> I'd rather go out and <laughs> go out to a bar. And now all of a sudden I'm stuck doing fucking Nightwatch. I'm like, what, we were going to go out. I can't now. Yeah, it's, it's the more, yeah, you know, but that's the, one of the reasons why they started Manhattan South Nightwatch was to get away from pulling people from the squads uh, a couple of times a week in the South, that was, it was, it was brutal because every week, every two, you, you had to fill, those slots had to be filled. And, yeah, so uh, like once every three months. Yeah, but when you, it still sucked. Whoever was gonna get it, it's still really, just in the middle of your week, it's horrible. I'm a night owl. I was born late at night and I've been up late ever since. So they always agree with me. Um, I was born at night, but not last night. Right? Not born at last. Well, <laughs> you reached a point when you when I when I when I had night watch, you figured out okay, it's like four o'clock. We're not going to hear from them now. So yeah, that's, now. That's the kiss of death. Right, right, like, right. You know, because uh, at that point, you guys want the overtime. So most of the time, true, true. Right, it's like it's like ten to one on a turnaround, and you can already taste the first beer at Coogan's. Someone just got shot in the leg. You're like, oh. No, right? 12.45. I used to laugh. I said, listen, if you think you're going to escape here alive tonight, it's not happening. Because just when you think it's time to go home, you yeah. know, it, it's like a quarter after seven or whatever. We have, it, and somebody will get shot in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, you know, 7.30 in the morning, some guy decides to kill himself in front of Fox News. Uh, or a few years ago, and it was a tragic case. We had a limo driver shot himself in the head with a shotgun in front of Grace, uh, not Gracie, uh, City Hall. And it was, it was tragic because when you, I actually took the time to read the guy's manifesto, you know, as to why he did it. But at the same, here it is, seven, seven o'clock in the morning and then bang, your phone is exploding. The office phone's exploding, emails. Uh, it, it's just, you can never just, Say, ah, I'm gonna go home and go to bed today. Not happening. Pete, you know something? One of the uh, one of our fans on Facebook Live just asked if you would be willing to talk about your 9/11 uh, experience. Hey, before we do that, can we just? I, Shane Rogers says hello. Oh, hello, Shane. Yeah. All right, so uh, back to Bill. Hey. Go ahead, Bill. You go, no, well, we all we all all three of us are 9/11 responders, but. You had a very different experience than Mark and I. Maybe yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing about 9-11, um, the night before, 
it was a beautiful, I worked late too, it was a beautiful night. And I had to be in court that morning uh, on a case. Um, the DA that had the case actually called me. I wanted, wanted a very considerate person, pulled me up and says, listen, I'm going to be busy. Why don't you come down here at 11? So when the planes hit, I was still in the 19th precinct and then sitting on the couch up in the sergeant's locker room, falling asleep. Cop comes in, says, plane just hit the trade center. So I'm looking at, I put New York one on and I'm watching it and bang, here comes the second plane. And he says, that's gotta be a replay. I said, that's not a replay. I said, the building's already burning and it just got hit again. So we went down, uh, the van left without me and the Lieutenant. And, um, this is, you talk about the weird coincidences in life. I ran out in the street. I grabbed an RMP with the Lieutenant. Three firemen from the firehouse next door asked if they could join us. Dump all the shit out of the car. Oh, you're a fireman. No way you ran in a police car. <laughs> um, well, this, this one guy, the firefighter, a uh, fire lieutenant uh, by the name of Murphy and um, Ray Murphy. And there's actually a very famous photo of him walking into the North Tower after the first collapse. And uh, he died that day. And, you know, those three guys hopped in my car. One of the things I will never forget, going down the West Side Highway and some lunatic on a motorcycle with a leather helmet and goggles. I'm doing about 70 miles an hour in the RMP. This guy passed me on a motorcycle with a fireman on back who had his full turn, oh, everything, the tank and axe, hanging onto his helmet. And this guy fucking passed me. Wow. And I remember Murphy and the guys in the back, they were cheering, you know, and I looked and they were all laughing, you know, and we got down there. And like a cop with time on the job, I said, all these fire trucks, if I leave the car here, I'll never get the car out of here because of the hoses. I dropped those guys off in front of the hotel on West Street. I went over to uh, Battery Park City, put the RMP in there. We walked up Vesey Street, and as we're walking up, um, I realized I was by myself, and I, I turned around, and the lieutenant was with two old men. And I'm yelling, you know, Lou, we gotta go. And with that, I heard this strange noise. And I looked up and the top of the South Tower was coming apart. I says, holy shit. Took off running, ran to the, uh, ran into seven World Trade. The doors were locked. I actually had my gun out and somebody pushed the door open from the inside. And we ran in, um, I grabbed these two old men dragged him in back of the escalator that was there. And I mean, that whole lobby, it just seemed like the whole lobby came in on top of us. Um, I made my peace with God at that moment. I says, you know what? I had a pretty good run. Take care of my parents, take care of my family, you know, because I'm not getting out of here. And uh, the Lieutenant and I got separated. And after about a minute or so, I says, well, you're not dead. Make yourself useful. I get up, pulled two old timers up. They were both priests. And I says, man, it's just, I think I had an ace in my pocket here today. And, uh, you know, they went about their way. I was walking around the lobby there 
and you can't see anything. All the alarms going off. And I walked up the escalator and some guy says to me, he goes, thank God the police are here. And he hands me his flashlight and runs. I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking around. I'm it. There's nobody there. And I'm just yelling because I could hear people coming down the stairs. At some point, I walked out the back of the building and fell right on my face off the loading dock. And um, there was a retired New York City detective there, a guy by the name of Pete Conroy. He just passed away last summer. Pete Conroy was the director of security for Seven World Trade. Uh, he was having trouble getting people to help him. He had two guys up on the roof of Seven. And, uh, you know, I says, come on, I'll go with you. And um, I will say, Pete Conroy, one of the bravest people I ever met. Um, we went up the stairs. Yeah, with me. I made it about 15 flights. And on the way through, we loaded up. With, I had cargo pants. I loaded up my pockets with bottles of water from the cafeteria. I made it about 15 flights, puking my guts out, uh, not really being able to breathe because I ingested so much crap the first time. And he says, Peter, says, I think I'm done. And he says, I got to keep going. And I says, I'll go to the street. I says, I'll see if I can find the issue. He says, you know, he says, just stay in this stairwell. I made it to the street and he kept going. Um, I made it to the street. I step out onto Vesey Street. I had no idea what had happened. I didn't know that the whole building came down and uh, mass confusion on the street. Everything's on fire. There was a gas main rupture. There was cars blowing up. People are constantly ducking because tires are popping, gas tanks are exploding. Um, and I'm standing there and I'm there maybe two or three minutes and somebody yelled, Tower's was leaning. And looked up and all of a sudden you heard that, that I wouldn't call it a roar. It was like a And, um, you know, I'm standing on Bessie and West. You really just really in a bad spot. And, uh, I took off running. We all ran as the tower started coming down. I made it to like the first fire truck on, on West street. I got in there and actually funny, a guy I hadn't seen in years was behind the truck. And he goes, Hey, Pete, I look at him. I says, Holy shit, Jimmy. <laughs> it just hang on. And it came down. And to the point where I thought we were under the, um, thought we were under the actually under the building. Um, it was that quiet. The air was that dense with smoke. There was somebody screaming under the fire truck and, and, I crawled under the truck. I said, bro, you got to stop screaming, please. I says, you're here with the police and there's firemen here. I says, stop screaming. I says, we're going to be okay. We're going to get out. Just hang on to me and we'll get out of here. Meanwhile, I'm thinking we're fucked. There's nobody coming to get us. And uh, you go into sensory overload. You cite, uh, you, you all your senses are just getting whacked at once with just too much to process. Not realizing if I could move around, I'm not under the building. It was the air was just that pitch black. And after a couple of minutes, we made it out. Uh, we got all the people out from under the trucks and stuff and just said, you know, there's the light, start walking. 
and uh, and we did. And uh, you know that guy, Pete Conroy, made it a couple of more floors. Um, when the tower came down, the second tower, it hit seven World Trade so hard that the building actually bent. And he got trapped in the stairwell. He can only make it back down to the eighth floor. Um, it just, it was weird. You know, he broke out a window and got FD's attention and a couple of firemen came up. By the time they got to him, uh, one of the floors below them was already fully engulfed. And they literally had to fight their way in to get him and fight their way back out again. And, uh, you know, um, you know, you wonder why you're here. And uh, I can only attribute to the fact that the guy upstairs is not today. He had a plan. Um, there was a tremendous amount of death that day and, and destruction and lives destroyed. But the, the good thing that you take for it, there was also a lot of miracles that day. And a lot of people did make it out. Um, it sucks. Here we are 19 years later and, and people are sick and dying. Um, but, you know, um, it was funny because, you know, I retired from the job earlier that summer and came back. And uh, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, I retired. I came back. I was in a wicked RMP accident maybe two weeks back. I was out for a couple of weeks, came back, and uh, you were in the RMP accident after 9 11. Before 9 11. Oh. And, um, so you came back and then came back and actually had some lunatic. Uh, it was myself and another cop from the 19th precinct one night. Had a guy that wanted to go suicide by cop uh, on 85th Street, and thankfully we didn't. You know, he had a, an imitation 38 in his pocket. He held up Burger King. We got the manager in the car, and this guy doubles back and runs right at us, screaming, "Kill me!" And uh, you know, it's funny in this day and age. There was not much video back then, and there was a, a cop driving by that jumped into the middle of that fray. And if people would see that video today, they'd be like, oh, my God, what they did to that man. He was horrible. Well, I could have went with plan B and just shot him in the head and killed him. Right. Because he had his hand in his pocket on this gun trying to pull it out. Um, you know, there's two sides to every story. And then three days after that, I'm under the Trade Center. Um, I don't regret it. I have absolutely no regrets. I, it was the, you know, um, this is my life. This is what I was meant to do. It's what I wanted to be when I was you a know kid. Something? Just, just to stop you for a second, your World Trade Center story could be a movie in itself. Tremendous. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I take my no, hat off to you. That was, uh, you know, I mean, look, I think we all have a, a touch of um, PTSD from doing what we did over the years, all the, the misery we saw, all the violence we saw. And, you know, even just that story alone, I could see how emotional it makes you to tell that story. And it's, uh, it's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing thing. And here we are 19 years later and people hate the police, you know. Oh, without a doubt. Never forget it, right? You know, it, you know, here we are in the age of ACAB, all cops are bastards. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and you know what? You look at the people that are out there yelling and carrying on. You know what? When it comes to protest, I don't think there's a better agency in the world than the NYPD for handling protest. You've done it. I've done it. Mark, you've done it. We'll stand out there for 10 hours and listen to your bullshit and not even raise an eyebrow. And just say, all right, yeah, whatever. All right, and go on your merry way. 
until we it gets violent and we tell you, okay, now you got to say it walking. Okay. And when it comes to end those kind of protests, we're good at it. We're very good. Um, but we're in a situation now with, uh, we could have stopped these this, that, back in June. We could have stopped that the first night. Uh, if the political leadership just said, end this tonight, it would have ended. Uh, and bring all our resources to bear, you know, not put cops out there as punching bags to stand there and listen to these, to this bullshit. Um, but, you know, most of these people are out there now. They have no idea, right? They were young or they weren't even born when 9-11 happened. Right. The, same thing, the same thing with a lot of the hipsters and the transplants and, you know, the people that live here now. They weren't here when New York City was a shithole. Well, Pete, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing because you're right. The millennial generation, they feel fine about taking the train to Flatbush at 2 o'clock in the morning because they used to be able to do that. Guess what? You're not going to be able to do to do that anymore. No, because, but back in the 1990s, you weren't taking the train to Flatbush. No, that's what I'm saying. But in, in, in this day and age, they were able to do that. But it's going to go back. It's going to go back to what New York City used to be. The shithole, the crime, you know, everywhere you go, you, you're, you potentially could get robbed. Or someone stick a gun in your face, a knife, give me your money. You know, Billy, they, they never experienced that. You know, last year we were working on a case up at 146 in Amsterdam. Guy walking his dog. Cab driver on the corner. Here's a pop. And the guy falls down. And it was a horrible video. This guy's little dog jumping on him, like thinking he's playing at first, and all of a sudden realizes there's something wrong here. And I'm standing out there. I'm out there all night doing our thing. Some crackhead comes walking by. He goes, yo, man, <clears throat> you looking for shell casings? <clears throat> and I said, yes, I am. He goes, follow me, but don't follow too close. <clears throat> Sorry. We walk halfway down 146th Street. He points to the ground and keeps walking. I said, son of a bitch. There's a live round and a shell casing for a 30 caliber round, which is rare. It's an M1 carbine. It's really the only round that will fit in that rifle is a 30 cal. And I'm looking at it. Crime scene comes over and says, yeah, it's a 30 cal. I said, somebody was standing out here with a rifle and shot this poor bastard. And sure enough, we find video. And these two little pricks come walking down the street. They're standing there. They're going to shoot some other guy that's walking past them. Almost point blank range. This guy takes out a M1 carbine, military rifle. Brings it up. Pow. Winds up shooting this poor bastard a half block away. We didn't see that crap. We haven't seen that in decades. Uh and here's this poor guy. And everybody in the neighborhood knew this guy and loved him. Because they see him every night walking his little dog. You know, everybody knew him. And, you know, and I says, this is going to get bad. You know, when you have regular, you know, civilians, just people just minding their business, taking a rifle around in the ass and it kills them. Right. Bad. And you know what? It now, this June, you know, we had all, all this anti-cop shit going on. And they disbanded anti-crime. You know, we had three, three or four months of dealing with COVID, then the riots. Then we segue into this explosion of shooting. And um, 5th of July was my first one back. And 
I called the night watch sergeant in Manhattan North and I'm laughing. I says, uh, do you need help? And he goes, I don't know if I got 11 people shot in one incident or I got 11 people shot in three separate incidents in the three, two, three blocks apart, pretty much within two minutes. And it was three separate incidents. He says, but I got three people shot in the two, three. Can you go help out? <laughs> we go help, go over there. While I'm there, one of the cops is, uh, hey, he says, you got a couple of people shot in the three, four. I go up to the three, four. We got five more people shot in the three, four. Wow. And Nagel Avenue looked like Fallujah that morning. It was wrecked. I couldn't believe it. And uh, 22 people in seven hours in Manhattan North alone that night. That's unbelievable. We haven't seen that since the uh, the 80s, the late 80s. I, I think that might even be a record for the 80s. I, I, 22 is, I, I said, you got to be kidding me. And, uh, you know, it, it, is it the cops' fault? No. The cops are handcuffed. They cannot do their job. And until the laws are changed, this is the way it's going to stay. We've got this, we've got this Bolshevik clown grifter as a mayor, um, not listening. You got a city council that's going over the edge with them. And uh, well, Pete, you know, let's let's uh, segue to the um, to the diaphragm law because I know that you spoke to some people on the city council and you let them know your disapproval of them and this stupid law. You want to just talk a little bit about that? My first day as a retired person, I wake up and I says, you know what? Today's the first day of me being a social justice warrior for cops. I knew this guy was having a rally out in Brooklyn. And I waited until his rally was over. It was for essential workers. And I, I, I didn't act like a dick. I waited. And um, I'm, I've been known to give people a hard time on Twitter. Uh, in particular, this guy. And I went up to him. And I says, Councilman, I says, uh, I'm Pete the cop. Now, if it, the roles were reversed, I would have thrown me. We were on a pier, like 69, uh, I think the 69th, it's a pier overlooking New York Harbor. I would have thrown me into the harbor. That's how bad I broke this guy's balls on a regular basis. <laughs> he was a gentleman and he said, he started laughing and he says, don't go anywhere. He says, I wanna to talk to you. Let me say goodbye to these people. And I'll tell you what, he spent an hour, there was another retired member of the service that came out there with me. And you know what? He actually listened and he actually enlightened me to a lot of what is going on in the council. Um, I'm not gonna out the guy publicly, there was another member of the city council there, and I'll be quite honest with you, I'm sorry I didn't throw him into the harbor because this is a guy that's pretty much one of, you know, somebody you cannot, he's not listening. He's not going to entertain any other point of view other than his quote unquote, as I call it the worldview. And uh, he wouldn't shut up. So finally, I just said to him, I said, councilman, listen. I said, this is all great. You know, kumbaya, peace and love, uh, you name it. Visualize world peace, whatever it is. I said, but you're full of shit. And he looked at me. He jumped back. He goes, I said, this is all bullshit. I said, tonight in the 73rd precinct, some young kid's going to get shot. I said, tonight 
in the 3-2 precinct. One or two young kids are going to get shot. I says, down in Red Hook, some old man will be sitting in front of the Red Hook houses and is going to take one right in his ass because these morons are all carrying guns. And I says, you caused it. You and your policies have caused this. I says, I don't give a shit about your linkage to, you know, this guy just threw the whole thing at me. I, I, the only thing he might not have thrown in is climate change. Uh, <laughs> we got inequality, we got Black Lives Matter, you name it, this guy hurled it at me. It was one big all-encompassing situation to which that's when I told him it's bullshit. I says, I'm talking about New York City right here, right now. This is live on the ground. People getting killed. I says, mostly young people of color. I says, you don't want to hear it. I says, three nights ago, okay? I says, one of my last jobs, I was handling one thing up in the hospital and I walk in and there's this woman going berserk. Her 18-year-old son's laying dead on a gurney. I says, so I don't want to hear your bullshit about, well, at which point he finally said, I have another appointment. I have to leave. They're so, Pete, they're such cowards, these city council people. I mean, that whole, the whole thing of like the diaphragm law, that cops not being able to put their knee in someone's back to get them handcuffed. How about these jailhouse jacks that get out there jacked up, coming out of prison? How, you know, you need every man on deck to get one of those guys cuffed. You know, well, you know these city councils should go to a gym and they should absolutely. have to try to cuff people, you know? They should go through, take a train, go through one of the courses in the police academy on yeah. handcuffing. All right, tough guy, go speed cuff this cop over here. Some big job. They, they don't ask anyone with knowledge of police work for their advice. Their arrogance is such that they just make this decision and they got a crown of a mayor. And, and we got to include Cuomo in this too, because he he recently, you know, he took the side of the protesters against the police. He's making, he's spouting out some left-wing rhetoric now. He's a joke too. You well, know? he came out, I think it was about two, three days ago, just ranting and raving about the cops, how he's going to cut off funding if the cops don't start doing the job. Yeah. He's such a bullshit artist. I said, because this is a guy that signed the bill, the criminal justice bill, and said, oh, well, I didn't read what was in it. Well, yeah, you know he's what? A he's a <laughs> if you didn't read what's in it, you shouldn't be governor. That's like be gubernatorial malpractice, something that's going to affect millions of New Yorkers, and you don't read the bill? You know what? Hit the road, Jack, because he yeah. what he did now, he, he's attacking the cops again. And I'm like, hey, jackass, you signed this bill. Yeah. All right, this man will accept, he's like de Blasio in that sense, he will accept no blame for his behavior. Yes. Yeah. Here it is now, we have this diaphragm section, and all of this is, it, it needs to be done is a couple of, it needs a tweaking. They can carry on, they can fight about all the other bullshit that's in that bill from now to doomsday. I really don't care. But the fact is, is that cops' lives are in danger, civilians' lives are in danger, because the cops cannot do their job. It's going to be reversed because it flies right in the face of Article 35 of the penal law. But yeah, but you know why? But why should the unions and everybody have to file a lawsuit and go through all these legal hurdles? Because in the interim, people are getting shot. You know, no matter how you cut it, people are still getting shot and dying. Joe, Joe Murray, who's an attorney, is listening right now. And he said the diaphragm law actually incentivizes violence against the police. 100% correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the Brooklyn North, uh, 
oh Jesus, I forgot his name. The guy who was the CEO of Brooklyn North and Patrol. That was he, the community affairs guy? Yes. He yeah. comes out and says, if somebody's going to resist, let them go and make a memo book entry. Oh, God. That's unbelievable. What are we doing here? You know? Right. And, and But in that respect that the cops are not going to get in trouble, yeah, then that, that, that's a smart move. Would I want to be in that position? Absolutely not. That's why I'm retired now. And um, Well, you had mentioned before also, and we don't need to mention any names, but something that really upset you was these big bosses kneeling. And uh, kneeling down, that upset you. And that uh, may be one of the reasons you retired. Well, was it, was it a main reason? No. Was I shocked when I saw it? Absolutely. We're taught, all of us here, that all of these pictures here on the screen, we were taught from day number one, you don't take sides. I don't know what he thought he was trying to achieve, okay, by kneeling in front of the howling mass. Um, I'm not kneeling. I'm not taking a knee. And it's as simple as that. You can sit there and yell at me all day. I don't care. But you know what? I'll let you do your protest, whatever it is. But you think you're going to get in my face and tell me to take a knee? You can go fucking pound sand. Not happening. I don't know what that was the desired effect was of that because these th these clowns weren't going to give cut him any slack. Yeah, but Pete, there's like a kneeling society now. There's a bunch of them. They probably have rackets together. The <laughs> kneelers are going to have a racket up in the Bronx tonight. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what, Bill? One thing I can tell you before I did leave with the vast majority of the police, they're not kneeling. No. They're not taking a knee. And I don't know what certain people above us are thinking, but the people standing in back of you, they're not kneeling. And they viewed that as a, as a truly knife in the back moment. And yeah. uh, I, I don't know what was to be gained from that, but. Um, you know, Pete, it's, it's almost like with the leadership, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome. Like they're, they're identifying with this horrendous leader named de Blasio, and they start thinking like it. Um, I, I call it Stockholm syndrome. You start I, I identifying with your captor. You know? I, I, I don't know if you can be that whacked in your head to truly think like de Blasio, because that, that man's operating on some sort of different wavelength. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in that position. I can only speak for myself as a sergeant. We were out. They tried taking the block one night. We all go running out there. And it was some of the most vile, nasty invective I've ever heard. And mostly directed at black and Hispanic police officers, in particular, female black and Hispanic police officers. And some of them were white people. Some of them were black that were hurling this. And um, one, you know, and I'm like, you know what? 15, 20 years ago, it would have been, all right, say your piece. All right, you may go now, okay? Because we're about reaching point of our limit where you've gone way past peaceable assembly into acting like a complete disorderly asshole. And um, I felt terrible for those officers because I could see they probably would have liked to have leaned over the barrier and cracked somebody. But you know what? We were professional. We stood there. 
um, there was an older black guy that was with these kids. And they're not kids. They were in their teens, 20s, or whatever. He came back and he apologized to us. And he said, that was bad. And I said, yeah, it was bad. I says, and I says, you know what? We're going way past bad into fucking hatred. I says, that's what that was. And I says, you know what? They weren't yelling at me like that. They're yelling at the black and Hispanic cops. I mean, really now? You know, and he says, ah, I know. But he says, I'm glad you guys didn't react. And I'm, I'm like, that's all well and good. He says, I'm trying to shepherd these kids. I says, well, you should really give them some guidance that they, you know what? We have a thing called impulse control. Maybe they should use it, okay? Because at the end of the day, I'm not, you know, there's, there's going to be a limit to what I'll put up with or I'll let another officer be subjected with to. They were smart enough to know that if they raised their hands or threw something or spit on the officers, they were probably going to get cracked. And, uh, the, the, but the, the hatred, and I'm like, this is sick. This well, you know what makes what really makes it breaks my heart is like one of the videos I saw was when that lieutenant got hit in the head with the brick, and yeah. one of his cops pulled his gun, which is yeah, that's hundred percent. And the Blasio wanted him fired. I would have, I, I wanted to go to Gracie Mansion and slap the shit out of the Blasio, you know. Well, you, yeah, but you know what? There were multiple instances of like that where people were, you know, cops got a little physical with somebody. And everybody's bitching and crying. Oh, this cop shoved me. Shoved yes. you. You know what we would have done to you? Years back, you spit in my face or hit yeah. me with a skateboard. Forget it. You're, and, you're... And, and then Cuomo has his, his uh, attorney general, Letitia James, write up a 57-page report on the NYPD's conduct during these riots, of which he sided with the rioters. He calls them protesters. But... He does a 57-page hit job on the NYPD. This is the yeah, clown she, that's the governor. Yeah, he, she might want to do a 57-page report on his handling of the COVID issue in the nursing homes. Yes, I think uh, that's why it needs, it needs an independent investigation. You but know, he, likes to employ, he likes to appoint the investigators that, appoint, that investigate him. You know, or, or commission, you know, if Letitia James has so much time on her hands to carry on about bullshit, how about she look into... Thrive NYC, okay? Yeah, yeah. His wife misplaces $900 million, okay? And I always say this. I says, like, guys in the mafia stand in awe saying, oh, man, that's outstanding. Where did that money go? There's not one. Nobody's come out. There hasn't been a public accounting by Scott Stringer. None of these people. And you know what? It's not going to get done by DOI because that's another bucket in there. From An arm of the mayor. Yeah, a bucket. And uh, you have him, Cy Vance. Uh, he's a clown, too. I don't know what he's doing, because uh, they're certainly not prosecuting a whole lot of people. And you go right up the line. Letitia James isn't going to touch it. Because if you truly get into Thrive NYC, what you're going to see is a whole lot of nonprofits. And a whole lot of nonprofits with bad accounting. And you take a look at who owns those nonprofits. And, you know, it's friends of the mayor, associates, whatever. There was a couple of reports that came out today with uh, one of the nonprofits they were looking into. And I'm like, at what point does sanity return to government and say, maybe we should take a look into this? 
Well, right? So if Letitia James wants to investigate anything, let her investigate that. No, she couldn't. She wouldn't be able to find the bad guy in Rikers Island. Why would you have her investigate anything? There's nobody left in Rikers Island. That's true. They're, they're all out on the street. They're all out the street. Yeah. And, uh, Pete, let me ask you, what do you think it's going to take in regards to um, what, 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 how, you know, with 39 years on, what, how many shootings is it going to take? How many weekends in a row with before it breaks, before they decide to do something? If you had to make a prediction. We call it the Brian Watkins moment, which is what yeah. got... Uh, I was in Midtown right North now. when that happened. Yeah. And, and you know what, though? Brian Watkins happened, and it still went on for another two and a half years. He got stabbed in 91, and nothing changed until Giuliani came in in, in 94. The, uh, there'll be a number of really horrific homicides, and people are going to go, ooh, that's horrible. Uh, uh. With this clown running city government right now, we have another 14 months of this guy. He's not hearing a word we're saying. Uh, the city council, there are people in the city council, like I said, I, one, that realize that they're posturing publicly on one hand, you know, with ACAB and defund the police and all this other nonsense. Privately in the back rooms, they're like, how do we get out of this position? Because you're 100%, they never spoke to any cops, anybody in policing, they didn't speak to any attorneys, uh, the district attorneys. They realize they have a terrible problem on their hands. A good start will be changing the diaphragm law to get the cops back in the game. However, the overall picture, nothing's changing until this jackass is out of City Hall. Yeah, but Pete, the scary thing is that there are three candidates in line that are just as bad as him, that are probably going to be the next mayor. Eric Adams, uh, Corey Johnson, or Scott Stringer. How, the, how are they different than de Blasio? They're all three of them are hopels. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, Eric Adams, all right, is a guy that should know better. He was a cop 30 years, you know, but he comes out with his, hey, tell your neighbors to knock it off with the fireworks. And yeah. that woman was shot dead in Brooklyn. That's what he did as a cop. He did That's all he did as a cop. He threw yeah. firebombs. Yeah. He was the police department version of a poverty pimp. For 30 years, we listened to this guy throw firebombs. A lot of it very unfair. And nobody would go against them. Nobody would take them on because they were scared to. And uh, he's a buffoon. And, you know. Shabool. <laughs> hey, can you explain? Uh, uh, sometimes I speak Italian when I get mad. Hey, can you explain to our audience what a hoople is? <laughs> I not know in the Midwest. Well, that's Australia. Well, Actually, the word hoople comes from... I think Dr. Seuss way back when just growing up in Queens though, that was it. You know, I was a kid. I people, my brother would say, ah, that guy's a fucking hoople. And uh, hoople is like a general purpose kind of word for uh, you know, an ass clown. All right. I love that. That's a great top expression. He's an ass clown. That's great. Well, we have three ass clowns on, on the, on the left there. Scott Stringer is useless. Um, and Corey Johnson, uh, you know, you want to talk about an arrogant, nasty hoople. Um, here's a guy, uh, he's got, the only thing he's set on is being the mayor. God help us. Um, this guy, now, you got to remember something. 
we could have a Giuliani moment here. I, I'm a firm believer, because people are sick and tired already, that somebody may arise, you know. Well, oh, Pete, it's like that article that you posted. Someone wrote, you know, all the money is leaving the city. These people have had it. You know, they're not coming back. So you wanted to fund the police. How about we defund the city by all the big money people leave? Which is what's happening. And, yes. And, I mean, yeah. we're, we're in for a rough ride for two or three years, um, no matter how you cut it. That said, though, you know, we were in rough shape in the last years of the Dinkins administration. Just, yes. you know, there's, there's, the only thing is, but back then, we could still enforce the law. We can't enforce the law right now. Until the cops can get back, in, everything that's good in this city since the 1990s is because of public safety. Yes. It's not because your kids got smarter. It's not because they picked up more garbage or anything like that. It was because the city became safe. And, the, invest, and the investment dollars came in. That's people when the investments come in. They go to restaurants. People went to Broadway to, without having to worry about getting mugged or having a wolf pack beat the shit out of you. But you're right. Wolf, I just thought, you know, wolf packs are back and they're all on city bikes now. I just, yeah, uh, just, I, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Now they, now they can just rent their bikes. With their credit card that they stole a few minutes ago. Yeah, there's a little trick to it. If you know what you're doing, you just rip it right out of the holder, which is uh, what they're doing. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, but it shouldn't exist at all, but it does. And I think we're going to have another Giuliani moment. I don't think it would be Giuliani himself, but I think you're going to see Giuliani won in 93 in a city that's 80% Democrat, and he won. Because people were sick and tired of the crime, the corruption, the mismanagement, you know. But you know how Giuliani won because he killed in Staten Island. And I think he almost won Brooklyn thanks to the Hasids. Yes. And he lost Queens, the Bronx, and uh, Manhattan. Too, the cops voted for him. And then he gave us three zeros. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what. That that's my big gripe with him will always be it was actually two zeros. Um that will always be my big gripe with him, but I will give him credit where credit is due in that when there was a controversial incident involving a police officer, he was always the guy that came out and said, Hey, let's do an investigation first. We're not throwing anybody under the bus here, which is something he didn't do. We've been getting, now it's like we're just used to it. You know, de Blasio, boom, right in front of the bus, uh, which happened multiple times during the, during the riots. Um, so I think you may see a groundswell of people from Democrat, independent, Republican. They're going to just say, listen, I've had it. I've had it with crime. I've had it with the property taxes. I had it with the, with the corruption. And... So who that person is, I don't know. There's a couple of people throwing in. But the, the head of the fish has to be cut off at Albany. <laughs> you know? When well, the fish rots, it rots from the head. And the guy in Albany is no friend to the police either. No, 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 no. He's That's just a, he's another tin horn grifter. And, uh, hey, you know. do you have, like, a conspiracy theory about this? Like, why is it that um, all these uh, major cities, these blue, uh, blue states, are just basically letting um, anarchy rule and just destroying and having everybody move out of them. L People are leaving LA in droves. People are leaving New York in droves. Um, 
especially in New York City. So is there like, wh- why are they, are they doing this on purpose? I, I think, it, I wouldn't say a conspiracy per se. I think it's groupthink. Um, I think at the end of the day, they seem to feel that this is going to hurt Trump's re-election chances. Um, I don't know how anybody in their right mind could think rioting and chaos are somehow going to help you win an election. Um, are they all on the same page? Yeah, they were on the same page. Do they coordinate? Well, they probably coordinate within the state, but I just think that's their, their train of thought. Just, you know, let everything turn to shit. It's bad. It's, you know, because every one of these places that's having these issues, you look at Portland and Seattle, those are two big police departments. They're incredibly well-trained and they can put this stuff down. They can put this, I guess, for lack of a better term, insurrection. They can put this down in a heartbeat. The same way the NYPD, when it comes to managing these incidents, we decide it's over. It's going to end. That's when you need to employ all your assets. You put your mounted people out there, your SRG people. Take out all those toys. We have millions of dollars worth of uh, crowd control devices. Drones. You get the drones up there, man. It'd be scared shit. <laughs> um, I would go for the big drone. There's certain people, I got to be honest with you, I, I, I would go for... Actually, you might even want to take it up a step to like an A-10. Yeah. Uh, because... You know what's funny is that you never see any helicopters out now. Oh, I had them earlier. I had them earlier. You know what happened? Uh, out on a daily basis showing you who's speeding on the highway. Now, all of a sudden, we have no footage in any of these blue states from a helicopter. Oh, no, you're, that's an excellent point. You're 100% correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a lot of the stuff you see, it's from independent people. It's people putting up their own drones. I haven't seen a footage, an aerial footage, during this whole time. And these are people that are up there every single day following a speeder on the highway for the news, just, you know, making fucking uh, a short story. So um, talk about using resources that are just laying in the and I, I, I don't think it's the cops in the helicopters themselves. What I'm saying is that we're not using the resources. Like you said. You're 100% correct. And, you know, you, know Pete, uh, you said that the, the NYPD has the equipment, they have the talent, they have the know-how to take down this insurrection, these riots. And, you know, we had uh, Chief Anamone on. And, you know, he's, you know, he's the uh, architect of disorder control. But if you don't get the support of the mayor... No, you're done. You can have, you can have the greatest people in place in the world, and you're not going to do a thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anna Moen had the support of, of uh, Giuliani, you know, and I laugh, you know, the, the Texas Rangers have a old story where there was a riot in the town, the train pulls in, one Texas Ranger got off and they're like, where's everybody else? And they said, one riot, one Ranger. <laughs> you know what? Anna Moen, he, he was that Ranger. He was usually the riot also. Um, <laughs> he would bring it with them. But Everybody knew uh, that whatever was going on was going to end. And it may not look pretty, but it would end. And he it would end, end it. Yeah, he right was there. The shit is over. Animal's on board. 
Car five is on the air. It's over. Right? Car five. You know what? If you were a patrol supervisor and you heard uh, car five to Central K and he was on your radio division, you went, ah. Oh. Because you knew. <laughs> I remember a detective, a detective named Richie Brees told me when he was a cop, this guy uh, boat jacked the boat, you know? And they were chasing, the, they commandeered another boat, they're chasing him. And the patrol sergeant or some captain said, terminate that pursuit. And Adam Odom said, keep it going. Authority chief of the uh, chief of the bar. Yeah, I, I, I had heard him, well, I heard him on a late tour one night because somebody terminated the pursuit. And uh, I think he may have been upgraded to car three by that time, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> And he said, God, three to Central K. And, you know, you get some guys at the dicks that would key out the mics and stuff. Yeah. Nobody keyed them out. No. And it was keep it going. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't want to hear it. <laughs> and have that have that captain change his underwear and meet me on. on exactly. <laughs> Whoever that captain was just sharded in his pants. Yeah. <laughs> It's a different world, Pete. You know, I think we got to sort of wind this up, wind this down right now. And uh, Mark and I were thrilled to have you on. And the, uh, we really had a, an amazing police career. 39 years. I think you should definitely go see a psychologist, though, soon, because you did 39 years. Crazy, you know. And we want you to enjoy your life. And, you know, you have some amazing stories to tell. Maybe we'll be on a, 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 another perfect murder together. It was actually a great show. It really yeah. was a, a, a great show. Yeah, they canceled it. They were averaging 1.2 million per episode, and they still canceled it. And I, I was get getting, I was getting my chops as an actor, man. I got no I got nowhere else to go. Uh, well, I did four episodes, but then a sudden realization came to me that I am now typecast, and my future <laughs> as a Shakespearean thespian was now shattered. I was <laughs> I was typecast as the cop. Hey, Pete, right. what's your Twitter? You said you were active on Twitter. So, what's your Twitter? Pete the cop. Pete, the, I'm gonna find. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna befriend you on there, without a doubt. Um, yeah, I. Uh, I. Well, uh, no, just go on there, and you'll you'll enjoy it. We'll add you on police off the cuff over there. Really? Hey, um, just so one more reminder, uh, two things before we go. First of all, this Saturday is the rally, right, uh, Bill? Yeah, uh, uh, City Hall. It starts at City Hall Park, right, with Scott Lebedo. He painted the blue line down the street in Staten Island. He's an amazing guy. Yeah, um, there's going to be a lot of great speakers there. Curtis Lee was um, going to uh, be there, so is the... Um, the SBA president, um, uh, President uh, Ed Mullen, is going to be there. Um, it's going to be a great event this Saturday down at, uh, at noon at City Hall. Also, um, our Patreon. If you enjoy tonight's yeah, session, yeah. um, please help us out. We want to uh, build this thing uh, bigger and better, uh, police off the cuff. And um, we have three tiers there for you. And we're going to, I'm putting up special episodes just uh, just for people that are behind the wall there. And uh, Bill and I are going to be working very, very hard to make sure that we get the word out that, uh, you know what, law enforcement, we're good people, man. We're good people. Stop shitting on us. Uh, we're good people. We're here for you. I would just like to real quick say one thing to everybody out there in 
I guess Zoom world, wherever, wherever we <laughs> on the interwebs, thank a cop. If you see a cop, thank a cop. I've been, that's lately been my mantra. I know we sometimes used to get uncomfortable with it when people said thank you, but you know what? These cops are putting up with an incredible amount of shit these days. Thank a cop, let them know they're appreciated. Um, it, it, they're, they're going through an incredibly tough time. Well, Bill and I want to thank a cop, uh, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your service. I mean, uh, 39 years, two months. It's amazing. You know, Pete, they always tell you an old expression, you'll know when it's time to go. And you knew when it was time. I knew when it was time. You know, I didn't really want to leave, I guess, but I just knew for me I had to leave. Really? How many times did you hear me say, you know, I had enough of this. I'm leaving. You know, right. guys used to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going right. anywhere. Right. And I just knew it was time. And it was, it was a, a bunch of different things going on in my life at the moment. But you know what? It was time. And uh, Pete, that's why B, uh, Bill and I uh, embarked on creating this show. It was to memorialize great, great cops' careers. And it's expanded, but you know, we always come back to the great, great stories. And you have a phenomenal story. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, thank you for sharing. We'd love to have you back on in the future. I'd love to. And thank all our fans out there. You know, we actually do have a pretty large uh, following and we're growing every day. And as Mark said, we're gonna, uh, I'm gonna start doing a true crime episode that only is only for our Patreon customers. And Mark is going to start doing a uh, current events episode. And Mark's a real funny, well, both comics, but Mark's a real funny fucking comic. I'm, I've just been doing it for six years. Mark's been doing it for 23 years. He's a real pro. So he's a funny I'll tell you guy. what, Billy, when you walked into the squad, people knew, knew you were there. When you were in my <laughs> office. Hey, Pete, I always tell that story, man. I worked in the 2-6 squad. When he walked in with that long raincoat and that freaking Popeye Doyle hat, like, oh, shit, what happened now? What the fuck? Uh, something happened. <laughs> I always knew Billy was there. When he, 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 I couldn't see out of my office what was going on, but I would hear him come in and he would say, hey, you bucket. <laughs> when death walks through the door. <laughs> we had some fun. We had some laughs. That's what it's all about, right? Yes, we did. All right, man. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. Thanks thank you, guys. All you people listening, thank you very much. Good night now. Good night. Good night.